Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Hello, and welcome to Adventurelings. My name is Mason Winsauer. I am joined here by my lovely sister, Emily. Hi. Emily, what is Adventurelings? What are we doing here? <laughs> what are we doing here? Well, Adventurelings is a podcast by two siblings who love adventure movies. For other people who love adventure movies and who love to talk about movies, it's unscripted. We are just going to talk about why we love these movies so much for a little bit, and then we are going to watch the movie, and then we are going to dig into just every little thing and celebrate kind of our love for the genre. Absolutely. Are we experts when it comes to adventure movies? Are we film <laughs> critics? Are we anything? I mean, no. No. Not formally. Not. I yeah. like to think that I am an expert in adventure movies because I honestly adore them so much. I would say our only expertise is when we were little, we used to stage our own adventure plays, I that guess you could true. say. Yeah, so I think we've been trying to create our own adventure fiction <laughs> for a long time, but no, we are not experts in any formal sense. But I do want to ask you a question. Okay. Why do you like adventure movies? What is it for you about them that you love so much? So what I love about adventure movies is kind of the cross-genre idea. I feel like they touch on so many different types of media and communication, comedy. There are obviously horror aspects, but it always involves a journey, you know, a personal journey or a physical journey through life. And you kind of get to be there along with them. And, you know, you identify with these people that go through these big shifts and it makes you believe that you can do it too. Yeah, I would say that's a little bit more highbrow than my answer, which is okay. just that when I was a kid, I wanted to be Indiana Jones. Oh, uh, that's true. <laughs> so I think that for me, it is that last part of what you said, just sort of the vicarious, the proxy living. Like, I want to do all those things. I want to think I could do all those things, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> go on adventures. I want to go on adventures. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about the movie that we're watching today is its comedic style, its kind of offbeat pacing. It's got a lot mm -hmm. of those elements that we just talked about, as well as, you know, that personal journey. But what is the movie we'll be watching today, Emily? Oh, man, it is a film with everything. Like you said, the comedy, the romance, mm -hmm. the horror. It is The Mummy, the 1999 fantastic <laughs> film, <laughs> The Mummy, with our dearly beloved Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz, Arnold Vosloo. There's so many great people in this movie. Mm -hmm. It is an absolute classic. Odette Fair, weirdly our mom's favorite character. She told me one time that she was like, I think he's about the most handsome person I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. <laughs> and she has good taste. And yeah. actually, that's a trivia fact that I came across doing a little bit of research, is originally the director, Stephen Summers, planned to have, I think it was him, but he planned to have the Medjai characters mm. in like full body tattoos. Mm. And he saw Odette Fair and was like, no, too pretty, cannot do. <laughs> Like, literally, that's what happened. They changed the makeup yeah, because they didn't want to cover up how pretty he was. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that is fantastic. Yep. So yep. this is, at the time, in 1999, this movie got an $80 million budget, if I'm remembering correctly, which was yep. pretty surprising for a brand new franchise and, you know, something that hadn't been proven out. We live now in a world where it seems like the only time that studios invest large amounts of money, it's in something they know will be very successful. In this yeah. movie, I don't know that I would have had that confidence going into it, but I'm glad that they took the chance on it. And obviously it turned into one of our favorite franchises, but it did turn out to be a commercial success to the tune of, what was it? $416.4 million. Yeah. So it made quite a bit of that money back. Obviously it spawned, spawned, I think is the right word, a <laughs> uh, number of sequels. The second, you know, The Mummy Returns, I personally also love, even though I think you can definitely poke some more holes in it. But you also get some really great memorable fight scenes. I will try not to do any spoilers. But then I think later down the line in the franchise, things got a bit wibbly. <laughs> but that's a longer conversation. But certainly, yeah, it was very successful. Thank goodness. But we didn't really talk too much about our personal history with the movie. So sure. do you remember when the first time you saw the movie was? When you first saw The Mummy? I don't, but I feel like it must have come through you. Because I think you saw before I did, and you had already established an affinity for it. 
and maybe brought it home to us and we watched it together. I only have good memories of it though. And I'm guessing that's because you already loved it and you were exuding your love and your passion for it as I watch it for the first time. But do you remember yours? I do. I actually have a very clear memory of the first time I watched Mm. it. So I was at a sleepover with my high school best friend and we watched it in her basement, like alone in her big empty basement. And I think possibly because of that, I have kind of, I saw it first as more of a horror movie. And, you know, it has a lot of visual effects. It's very dramatic. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe I was just like in a cold basement as a preteen, teen person, just like mummies. But it became a favorite. I think I stopped seeing those horror elements pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And honestly, was like my comfort movie in college. I had a VHS tape of it. I was trying to remember what the mummy movies before this that we would have seen would have been because you kind of go into certain movies now, you know, zombie movies have just been done over and over. But the earliest days of film, mummies and zombies, like they were horror elements. And this movie for sure takes it out of its element and kind of makes it into a different genre entirely. So I'm trying to think of the context of like what mummies had meant to us before we even got (laughs) to this movie. And it may have been more of that horror style. Yeah, absolutely. Well, was it like the 1932 mummy Mm -hmm. that was the big famous one before? But you're absolutely right. It was relaunched, I don't know, into the public consciousness from having previously been a horror movie or a horror property, I guess. But, you know, that was something that was really intentional, changing that tone. I mean, Stephen Summers talked a bit about wanting to go more of like an Errol Flynn direction. I really love that it, like you said, you know, it melds genres. You get a little bit of the sort of titillating horror aspect of it. You get these big swashbuckling British people in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a whole genre of films. Yes. You get the Rachel Weisz librarian coming out of her shell thing. Like it really pulls together so many different satisfying things to watch on screen. Yeah. And then also just locations. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned there is the swashbuckling type. And I think that they picked a fantastic actor for that, being Brendan Fraser, who we love from not just The Mummy, but from many of his other films. But that wasn't who the role was offered to originally? No. In fact, it is rumored to have initially been, and this says rumored, but the details are is verifiable, so I don't mm. know. But it was apparently rumored to have been offered to Leonardo DiCaprio, who was very interested, apparently loved the script, wanted to be in the movie, but he was already committed to The Beach, which came out in 2000. And apparently he had asked if The Beach could be delayed so he could film The Mummy, but was refused. So apparently he was really on board to be Rick. But I think while I'm sure he would have done a very interesting job, I'm sort of picturing some like Blood Diamond vibes. (laughs) I think it's very lucky for all of us that it went to the great, the luminous, the warm and wonderful Brendan Fraser. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. I can't imagine what that movie would have been with DiCaprio. Maybe I'm putting limitations on Leo that I shouldn't, but I just can't (laughs) imagine it would have had the same tone that Brendan was able to bring to it. No, I mean, I think his warmth is always really key in everything he's Mm -hmm. done. He has a really strong sense of personal warmth on screen that I love to watch. Yeah, he would just be anybody's best friend. Like, it feels like you can't not be friends with him. Yeah, he brings a smile to my face no matter what he's in. Yeah. Oh, my God. George of the Jungle, obviously being a favorite, that movie is really a huge contributor to what got him cast for this. And I think probably some of these elements that we love about him are why he was cast. You know, because the warmth, the humor, but also the ability to have those really earnest moments. I, by the way, love George of the Jungle. Such a good movie. I think you can, <laughs> such a good movie. I think you can make a good case for it as an adventure movie, but we'll argue about that another time. We will. But That's definitely going to be a key part of this podcast is arguing about what is and isn't an adventure movie. Um, right. Because the cross-genre idea means that like so many different things can be included in it that we will probably get into some Mm -hmm. very deep discussions about that. Um, Oh, I'm sure. I think one thing that these two movies for sure have in common, I mean, I like to think of adventure movies as sometimes a character that's extremely capable and competent, like in the case of the Indiana Jones movies, or sometimes a character that's way more kind of naive and new to the situation that they're being put in. That 
wherever they're coming from, a character is tossed into a new situation that they did not yes. intentionally bring upon themselves. Often, almost always, there are these elements of travel. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of continue with this. But I will say, George of the Jungle, George is taken from the jungle and thrust into San Francisco and does it very does much... definitely uh, have adventure elements. I will yeah. give you that. Well, there's a lot of travel. There's uh, swinging on vines. True. There's abs. There's there costume monkeys. changes. <laughs> um. monkeys. Yeah. Yeah. There are great bad guys. Oh, yes. man, there are great bad guys. Thomas Hayden Church, and oh, that is, like, gosh. truly one of them. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, man. Okay, but that's another episode. But, yes, so he was coming into this movie from George of the Jungle. I think Stephen Summers, the director and writer, had commented that he felt like Brendan Fraser really had that Errol Flynn swashbuckling character that he envisioned. Mm-hmm. And this is a quote I really liked. He said that Brendan Fraser understood that his character didn't take himself too seriously. And this is a direct quote. Otherwise, the audience can't go on that journey with him. And to me, that's really a big part of what makes this movie and so many of our favorite adventure movies so successful is they have enough of a sense of humor about themselves that you can really come on the journey with them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, also, I think a fantastic supporting cast. Yes, So the way that this podcast is set up, we have two parts. We have the beginning where we talk about our memories, the context of the movie, and then we will take a break to watch the movie and come back afterwards to talk about how different things were than we remembered. You know, what were the things that stuck out to us? How do you think this movie has held up over time? Lots of different things. So Mm -hmm. at this point, I believe we are going to pause here watch the movie, and we will come back shortly to talk about our impressions. And more movie trivia, all kinds of details that we looked up about the filming that we didn't want to do in the first part of the podcast and spoil things if you are one of those people who has not yet seen the movie. On the one hand, I want to say, how could you? And then on the (laughs) other hand, I'm really excited for you if you haven't yet seen this movie because Imagine watching it it for the first time. Oh my God, I know. I can't. I will say, if you are watching it for the first time, please just keep in mind, in relation to certain visual effects, that it was made a very long time ago. (laughs) There's actually a lot that I want to talk about at the end regarding the visual effects, because 1999 and 2000 was a very impactful year for visual effects. And we will get into that after the show. And they did try some new stuff, some interesting new stuff that we can talk about. So buckle up, get your popcorn, get your drink of choice, and let's watch The Mummy. I don't know what that was. That was a really bad segue. I'm sorry. I love it. All right. Enjoy the show. All right, here we go. We're watching The Mummy. Where did you get this? On a dig down in Thebes. Jonathan, I think you found something. There is an ancient legend of a place known as the City of the Dead. You call it the doorway to hell. Where the earliest pharaohs were said to have hidden the wealth of Egypt. Are we going into battle? There's something out there. Something underneath that sand. They came to uncover its secrets. Mummies, my good son. This is where they made the mummies. They sought to unlock its treasure. And then there was light. Oh, boy. What they did... Oh, my God. It does exist. I think this may be the Book of the Dead. ...was unleash a force unlike any the world has ever known. You must not read from the book! You have unleashed a creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years. He will regenerate and no longer be the undead. We are in serious trouble. On May 7th... Do you swim? If the occasion calls for it... Trust me! It calls for it! Universal Pictures invites you... His powers are growing. What? This just keeps getting better and better. ...to experience the adventure... It appears he's already chosen his human sacrifice. ...that will live forever. If he turns me into a mummy, you're the first one I'm coming after. The Mummy... Yay! Very good. Very good. There we go. We are back from watching the 1999 film, The Mummy. 
We are. We are. And I really hope that the people listening to this have also taken the time to watch the movie recently. It doesn't have to be now, but I still find it a treat. And every time I watch it, I pull something new out of it and enjoy it in a new way. Obviously, you and I got to chat while we were watching it, which is a great experience, too. Yes. But yeah, what were your big takeaways? Oh, man. Is this a good movie? Yes. Yes. A thousand percent it is. I mean, (laughs) so for listeners, like where Mason's coming from with that is like, you know, one of the things we wanted to talk about with each movie that we do is like, is it good? Does it hold up? Is it an adventure movie? Because some things that aren't, you know, good or fun, you know, there are a lot of movies that I like that I could like see are not objectively good. But I do think that this one is. Yes. Honestly. And there are a lot of movies that we will end up covering that have historical relevance, you know, but maybe aren't enjoyable, but, you know, lend themselves to kind of the path of adventure movies through time. So we won't always end up watching good movies, and some (laughs) some we haven't even seen, and we will have to watch them live kind of for you or with you and make these determinations after the fact. So it's, it's definitely a question that I think is worth asking. Is it good? Yes. Is it fun? Yes. yes. Is it adventure? Yes. yes. This is why we started with this movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. We, <laughs> exactly. We went with the underhand softball approach. <laughs> softballed it, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. But there are so many things about this movie that I love. But I do want to start with something that I had literally never thought of before that I found in the trivia First of all, I have to say, like, I owe a lot of the facts that I am spitting from the IMDb trivia section. But he wasn't actually mummified. Really? What was yeah. the process so, like, that they went through they put, then? Well, they put him in the wrappings alive, you'll note, because right, right. he's struggling. And then they put him in there, and then they put the scarabs in. Mm-hmm. That is not mummification. Yeah. It does not involve the removal of any of his organs. Yeah. It does not involve the treatment with... Oh, God, chemicals. Yeah, embalming fluids. Embalming fluids, or... I feel like frankincense was a part of it for some reason. What am I thinking of? Hashtag podcast goals. We need a mummification expert. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anyway, he wasn't actually mummified. The priests were, but that was something that somebody pointed out there. Is like, hey, it's called the mummy, but he was not a mummy. Yeah. I was like, okay, fair point. That's true, and... Evie, during the movie, actually does make the distinction of when you're mummified, you are dead, and he was definitely not dead. Yes, you'll be dead when they do this. Yeah. Exactly. So, anyway, that was something I'd never noticed before. I'm stunned that I never noticed it, but mm-hmm. that's how it goes. It's a bit of a technicality, I guess, because, yeah. but you are correct. I don't know if it's a technicality. I mean, it's just wrapping you in fabric. Yeah. I wouldn't consider that the key part. I would consider the ripping out of all of your organs and then well, you were going trying to, to preserve you. You're going to make a lot of trick-or-treaters very sad when you <laughs> when a kid comes to your door, dresses a mummy, and you say, what are you? And are they you? Say, you're not dead, are I'm, you? I'm a mummy. And you say, get out of here. No, you are not. It looks like you still have all of your organs. Excuse me. <laughs> no candy for you. <laughs> No, listen, all I'm looking for is an internally consistent world, okay? okay. In the world of Halloween, I don't expect children to be dead. <laughs> In the world of the mummy, I'm just saying. Okay, that's fair. That's anyway, fair. okay. Along the lines of historicity, mm-hmm. there are a couple of other things, too, that came up in researching that I had never really realized before. One of which is they actually did intend for Evie and Jonathan to be the children of Lord Carnarvon, who, of course, funded Howard Carter's expedition mm. and died and is a whole part of like the mummy curse thing. But like the real guy who actually, interestingly, he died of like... I think the story is there was a mosquito bite and then he cut it shaving and then got an infection and mm. some whole thing. But the point is, like, his death, which happened shortly after the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb, was seen as a part of this mummy's curse deal. So they actually intended to, like, make them the children of these people, which is included, apparently, in the novelization, which I actually didn't know there was a novelization okay, well, of the movie. Okay, well, I just realized, I saw that look on your face, and that's the look of, you didn't realize there was a novelization, but you're going to go buy it immediately, aren't you? <laughs> 
No, no I okay. think I'm gonna let it be pure in my mind. Like I only need this one version. I don't need to be like reading a novel and like that's not what it should. I disagree with that. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> um, but they changed it from Carnarvon, which is hard to say because obviously a British accent, you would be dropping some of that second R, especially. Yeah. But they changed it from Carnarvon to Carnahan. So. Mm-hmm. The only reference remaining in the story is that line about her father being a very, very famous Mm -hmm. explorer. I never connected that or assumed that or anything. Yeah. Well, there are no cues, really, that would have given you that in the movie that would have tipped me off to that being part of the intent. So I wouldn't have made that connection ever. (laughs) Well, they said it was in the novelization, so presumably that's true. But I said that they changed the last name, but Carnarvon was not his surname. It was his title. So his actual name was George Herbert, and he was the Mm. fifth Earl of Carnarvon. Just say it with an Irish accent, Carnarvon. (laughs) Oh, God. That's even worse. Carnarvon. Hmm. Yeah. Anyway, also... George Herbert, Earl of Carnarvon's daughter's real name was Evelyn. So oh, they just, okay. I don't know if there was a Jonathan as well, but apparently they were like, we're just going to use this. And then they changed mm-hmm. the last name. So, yeah. Okay. But yeah, I mean, also along the questions of historicity, Imhotep was real, Anaxanamen was real, but obviously this is not their story. Living, <laughs> this is not what mummies, actually happened. Undead mummies, <laughs> yeah. not no. real. No. Don't mean to spoil <laughs> the movie or anything. Or spoil well, history. Well, I mean, sort of, yeah. But like, sort of going really deeply into, like, who these people actually were and what they did. I mean, the short answer is that Imhotep was an architect, and he's credited in Egyptian carvings, whatever. And then Anaxinamen was a princess who is a half-sister and wife to Pharaoh Tutankhamun. There's no record yeah. of them having any sort of relationship or anything like that. Just, they are both no. figures in history. Also, Seti I ruled, like, way after this, after they would have been alive. So there's a lot of gotcha. stuff that they just sort of plucked people from, you know. Yeah. yeah. And that's something I'm not going to harp on at all. Um, no, no, no. Movies. My wife is very strict when it comes to historicity and things like that. And when we're watching movies, you know, she'll point out inaccuracies. And I love that about her. But I do have to remind her frequently that it is a movie <laughs> and for yeah. entertainment purposes. And so... That's something that I'm not going to harp on too much here. Yeah, well, and, you know, another thing, too, is it's not their fault. Like, these are characters from the 1932 movie, so basically they were like, oh. you could, it's easy to pass the buck and be like, someone else made this mistake. That's actually, no, that's a very good point. <laughs> I'm just perpetrating it. <laughs> and at some point, I will have to watch the 1932 mummy and see the origins of the yes. movie that we've come to love. Yes, absolutely. I think we probably will end up doing that. So, enough of that crap, though. What are your primary thoughts, reactions? What really jumped out to you from this rewatch? I'm going to steal two questions, kind of, in terms of what I noticed and does it hold up, is yes, I still very much so enjoy this. If this were re-released in the current year with a similar budget and updated visual effects, I think it would still be a great movie. And just watching it again reminded me of its timelessness and how much I can enjoy a movie because I think that is something that I don't have a lot of right now, you know, Mm. are movies that I just truly enjoy that I can go back to that feel like a warm blanket. And this is one of them. And so just kind of falling back into that and reaffirming that it's not just nostalgia, but that it is in fact a good movie with likable characters and a fun plot and all of that, just reminding myself, like, yeah, this was a good movie. I enjoyed this for all the right reasons, and that it's not just the rose-tinted glasses of the past. Well, speaking of likable characters, who would you say are your favorite supporting characters, and why is it Benny? (laughs) (laughs) Benny is a fantastic supporting character. I don't know if he's my favorite supporting character. I like Jonathan a lot. Oh, yeah, you know what, you're right. One of the things that we were wondering about as we were watching the movie, is is subconsciously did we have any connection to the fact that there was a sibling bond in this movie? And even though my name is Mason, my technical first name is Jonathan. And so I think, you know, maybe growing up and having that Jonathan character that was kind of fun-loving, maybe drunk all the time, uh, (laughs) with a studious, adventurous sister was something that 
appealed to me in Struck Home. Even though I was not, I will repeat, I was not a drunk child. I did not spend my youth drunk. That that is just a weird coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Describe your childhood. Well, I was I was drunk, drunk most of the time. I can't really remember. No. <laughs> Have you seen the, the oh, movie The Mummy? That <laughs> that really describes yeah. my childhood well. <laughs> oh goodness, yeah. Jonathan is fantastic, though. Like he has so many great comedic moments. Yeah. While we were watching, I think one of the ones his first appearance is really one of the best examples. Just like the popping up in that coffin, flopping mm-hmm. the arm of the skeleton over. Like There's- his timing. I think that's the thing for me. Is John Hanna's timing is amazing. The way that he is written, he has a lot of both physical comedy and witty comedy and kind of like the bumbling accidental hero type comedy. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that very much. So, And he was very experienced at this point. And, you know, one thing we looked up during the watch of it was how this relates to Four Weddings and a Funeral. Mm-hmm. So that was 1994. This is 99. So, I mean, he was already doing significant film work and beautiful dramatic performances. So, like, he came into this, like, very capable of making the most of what he was given here. So, I mean, obviously, like, experience shines through, but it wasn't an accident that he did such a great job, I guess is all I'm trying to say. Absolutely. (laughs) What about you? Who were your favorite characters? Uh, Yeah. I mean, Jonathan's fantastic. I love Benny. I should really start by saying I am obsessed with Rachel Weisz, generally. Mm -hmm. I am obsessed with Evie specifically. Mm -hmm. And that almost is a go without saying, so I'll just jump on to the supporting characters for the moment. I mean, so many people have great moments. Winston's little cameos of, you know, wishing he died with his guys and stepping in the fountain and, you know, saving everybody and then dying. I mean, he has a good little arc for that guy. Yeah, there's a lot of backstory, a lot of character built into kind of a very small amount of screen time, which I think is interesting. And obviously the connections to the RAF, but then when he's presented with this blaze of glory moment, he embraces it fully. And yeah, I thought that that was a very cool part for him to play. And speaking of cool parts too, I think Ardeth Bay obviously belongs on that list. We (laughs) talked about Odette Fair and how he was too pretty to cover up. I mean, watching the movie, I was like, yeah, yeah, uh Mm uh-huh, yeah. Especially the hair. Like, So at the beginning, he's always wearing this hat and scarf situation. And once all that comes off and you see the beautiful, like, wavy, curly, dark hair and everything, I was just like, yeah, mm -hmm, you don't cover that up. That's what I'm going for right now with my hair. (laughs) Your hair? Yeah. Yeah, me too. He went on to have a long career, but this was actually his first major screen role. Hmm, okay. Yep. Ardeth Bay trivia fact. Okay. In the 1932 Mummy, apparently, Ardath Bey, spelled slightly differently, is the alter ego of Imhotep when he's trying to pass as a modern Egyptian. So that's an interesting choice. I don't know if that's just meant to be like a nod to the original or if... I would imagine so. I'm now really curious about the plot of the original because... (laughs) Right? We never really got a period where Imhotep was trying to pass as a modern Egyptian. We got a scene where he had his face covered and then a scene where he was in a crowd, but still not complete. And it was very apparent to those around him that something was wrong with him. And he didn't speak to common Egyptians or anything like that. And so now I'm really interested in seeing how Imhotep was portrayed in the original, just to see what they did with that interaction of him trying to pretend to be a modern Egyptian. That's really That does sound... Like, there's some comedy in that (laughs) scenario. Intentional or unintentional, there probably is, yes. Yes. Oh, we'll be interested to do that one for sure. Mm -hmm. Another interesting fact, I gotta stop it with the trivia facts, I apologize to the audience (laughs) for that, but the opening voiceover, they initially planned it to be Imhotep until they were like, oh, uh, he couldn't speak English, and they gave it to Ardeth Bay. Yeah, (laughs) so that's why we get his mellifluous tones as our voiceover. Mm Mm-hmm. By the way, subscribe to the podcast where you can hear words like mellifluous, <laughs> whatever that means. It means sweet or musical, pleasant to hear. Okay, good. It's like melodious, basically, uh, but okay. mellifluous. But you're only going to hear it here. <laughs> only here. Yeah. <laughs> so but. we noticed a lot of details as we were watching the movie, little things that maybe we hadn't noticed the first time or that we really enjoyed seeing. What were... <laughs> Don't laugh. You're not allowed to laugh yet. <laughs> 
Emily, okay, I won't Emily and I, I won't. <laughs> we discovered something. We discovered uh, a little detail. Um, <laughs> a very a little detail. I'll leave that one for you to okay, explain. Okay. Little details that I enjoyed. Let's see. Definitely always fixate on Rachel Weiss's eyebrows and maybe mm. when I'm watching the movie. I think that it's historically accurate, those little thin eyebrows, but so I mean kudos I guess to the hair and makeup team. But also it honestly like every time I'm like, I wonder if she lost any eyebrow hair over this. Like if they actually plucked them down to that, mm. how long did it take to grow back in? Mm-hmm. Cause you can over tweeze, like you can lose that hair. It's such a risk. It's such a risk is what I, I'm saying. I did not know that. <laughs> and now I do know that. Yeah. So Mason, yes. what types of little tiny details <laughs> really <laughs> what details would you say stick out to you? <laughs> All right, you guys are going to get the reveal at some point and it's going to be funny. Right now we're just beating around the bush. Are you really not going to say it? No, I will. You got to tell them. You okay. got to tell the audience. <laughs> so my favorite details of the movie are I love set dressings. So one of my favorite things to watch is when a movie or TV show or whoever, like actually takes the time to create physical objects that exist in the space. And sometimes they're really well appreciated. You have these like hero objects, like the book of the dead, the book of the key, the key, you know, things like that. But then some go really underappreciated. And I'm going to use Harry Potter as an example here because we went to see the Harry Potter exhibit in London one time. And to see the amount of things that never even show up on film, but are part of the universe that you see. And like you subconsciously know that it's a full world because somebody's taken the time to put in each of these little elements, even if you don't call them out individually, like posters, the propaganda posters from Harry Potter when Umbridge was there. All of those things are like things that take very real time by somebody to create and to make the world feel so full. And one of the things that I noticed in this movie was the scarabs that were very, very intricately done, the blue gold scarabs. And I mentioned it to Emily during the movie, and she went out and found the actual person, the sculptor who made those, whose name is Tracy Ann Bynes. And I thought it was just a fantastic little tidbit that... Like, those are real people that are making these Mm -hmm. worlds feel deep, feel real, feel authentic. Even kind of in an an authentic context, it's lovely. So I really appreciated that. But the other element, detail that we um, (laughs) noticed is there was more nudity in this movie than I remembered. (laughs) I really had forgotten that there was some penile action. There's some peen. There's some peen action in this movie. Um, you maybe forgot it. I had zero idea. No, I didn't forget it. I was downplaying. Because, no, I thought that there was 0% penis in this movie. I would have assumed that there was there 0% is penis in this movie. There is not 0% penis in this movie. There is... There is, like, 1% penis. There's, like, 1% penis, but on a scale from 0 penis to some penis, it's 100%. <laughs> It's 100% some penis. In the binary. If you're looking at it as a binary, is there a dick in this movie? Yes, there is. Exactly. I feel like that that, um, (laughs) is how we should categorize movies from now on. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Apparently, during the scene where a scarab has found its way into the warden's body, he is writhing in pain, and for whatever reason on that day chose to not wear underwear. And in all of that writhing, some, you know, some things get exposed. And that was a surprise. There was a wardrobe malfunction. There was a little bit of a wardrobe malfunction. But I think the thing that is so surprising is that it's actually in the movie. Like, it's there. I don't think they realized that it... I guess not. and, And this came up via somebody else's trivia. Like, we did not notice this on our own, which... But we did verify sure. it. We did <laughs> factually verify it. That it's was important verified. to me. I couldn't let I could not let that particular trivia question slip no. I could not <laughs> let that uh, particular trivia question <clears throat> yeah. go unchallenged because that's a pretty bold thing. Like it's a pretty bold thing to say there's a penis in this movie in a movie where I'd never seen any penises. So None. 
Zero. No. You know, if this podcast has a motto, it is trust but verify. <laughs> so we verified. And, you know, it was interesting. So reading kind of some more background because of having discovered this via Trivia Fact. They apparently really tried to cut around it, and apparently this is the best they could do. If this is the best uh, they could do, I could do better. <laughs> I mean, I'm just saying, like, you're spending a lot of money on visual effects in this yeah. movie. A lot. So, can't you paint it out? It was not much <laughs> that was showing. <laughs> so, I'm just saying, like, you know, I feel like the VFX department, if they knew about it, could have done something about yes. this. So, it seems more like it must have been an accident that they left it. Yeah, so, you say not much, but it's still visually identifiable as a penis. Yes, correct. And I think that's probably all of the uh, detail that we need to share with you, the audience. So if you want to go look that up, go for it. Other details. I mean, I agree with you, though, about the set design. I think one of the things for me about movies... Well, actually, this is a good conversation to have, too. Is like, what about movies do you really gravitate to? Because one of the things for me is I really enjoy sound and sound Mm -hmm. design and sound editing. And so that's something I always pay attention to, especially when they're really good sound effects. And so I think some of that was really interesting. I did read that Imhotep's screams, vocalizations, whatever, are a combination of lion and bear roars. So that's interesting. So somebody's out there mixing lions and bears. Yeah. I remember lots of little Star Wars facts and there are tons of animal noises that get used all over the place, just, you know, remixed, reconfigured to make the intended sound. But you have to like start with something, right? Because not everything can start as just a key on a keyboard. So why not sample nature and bend it and move it around to get the effect that you want? Well, and speaking of Star Wars, the effects in this, and I don't know if they did all of the sound, but they did the visual effects, ILM. So there is a connection there. And that brings me to a point that I wanted to make, and that I wanted to save for the end as well, about the visual effects, because I wanted to rewatch it and see if they held up the way that I remember. And I think so. I think they did a good job of mixing practical effects and visual effects, computer-generated effects, in this movie, and it's 1999. It's kind of a transitionary point for film in a lot of ways, and this movie was nominated for a bunch of awards because it did tackle a lot of those really well. However, it did not win many awards in this year, even though it was nominated for many. Do you know why? It would have been something else that came out in 99, right? Or in the same award cycle. Yes. Yeah. Oh, goodness. That's a tricky question. What would it have been competing against that would have won a bunch of special effects awards? I feel like if I try to guess, I'm going to end up taking too long. Okay. So, Well, it was the year 2000 was actually the year that this other yeah. movie came out. And there was a pretty pivotal visual effects shift that happened due to a little movie called The Matrix. Oh! <gasps> Ooh! So... Many of the awards that The Mummy would have won for visual effects were actually taken by The Matrix. And so... Okay, fair. Yeah, exactly. It is fair. It is fair. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we don't judge this movie or any movie on the awards that it has won. I think that is terribly unfair to many movies. And so I don't want to take anything away from The Mummy. It's just that there's a lot of groundbreaking that happened in The Matrix that was rightfully awarded for technical and cinematic excellence. So not trying to take that away from anybody, just (laughs) it is interesting that it had some of the toughest competition of its decade era in the same year. Yeah. Now there is one character, and I know I'm kind of jumping back a bit, but there is one character that we talked about a lot during the movie Mm -hmm. that we have not yet mentioned, and that is Hot Nerd. (laughs) Yes. So, Tuck uh, Watkins, I believe is his name. Tuck Watkins. Yes. <laughs> that's the actor's name. Yeah, that's the, character the actor's name. Is, this is the character of Mr. Burns, one of the Americans that they are competing against to get to Hamanoptera. This came up because as we were watching those sequences on the riverboat, one of those guys, actually, the other one, I don't know, the other one, whatever. Uh, <laughs> the one that uh, isn't uh, a hot nerd, you, you, he doesn't matter. <laughs> Listen, there's hot nerd, there's cowboy, and then there's other one. Yes. And I feel bad for the actor that I am referring to as other one. I am sorry. But the cowboy one, actually that actor whose name I'm sorry to not remember, did audition for Rick. And Stephen Summers was like, hey, I like you. You're not my Rick. But he wrote another character for him. So that guy I like how you said that. Stephen Summers said, you're not my Rick. 
I but like that phrase, like, are you my Rick? Are you the Rick to my <laughs> Evelyn? <laughs> no. That's, that's a great... This guy is not. Are you yeah. my Rick? Anyway. But Hot Nerd, though, is recognizable. If you have recently watched the film, you know who I'm talking about. And the reason that I started thinking of him that way is, like, every scene, they are trying to force this beautiful man into a different, like, he's got the glasses, he's got the schlumpy hat that, like, droops down when everybody else's hat is up, the clothes don't fit him, like, the whole thing, you're just like, what are you doing to this man? So this made me wonder about him. And I also, I can't believe that I didn't think of this first, but I recently binge-watched Uncoupled with Neil Patrick Harris, and Tuck Watkins played his longtime boyfriend in that series. So I have seen him recently, and as I noted during our film watch, he has aged very well. I believe it. Unsurprisingly. So anyway, I find him to be kind of a fun side character because I feel like he takes more attention than probably they meant him to, and that's always a sign of an interesting performer. I, for one, disagree with Emily on this. (gasps) (gasps) I believe nerds can be hot and that that's perfectly normal it's perfectly normal (laughs) i have met many hot nerds in my life and who named him hot nerd me that's both of those people they're just normal people emily and some of them are hot okay (laughs) this is what i'm saying i know i know (laughs) i'm just kidding but you're right like they they were definitely trying to play him up as a nerd using all of the tropes but i never really bought it no, you no, don't buy it. That's the thing is like, it's just, yeah. And every scene you're like, hello, jawline. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, it is spectacular. Yeah, it really is. So anybody who enjoyed his character, definitely go watch Uncoupled. That was really a lovely story. Yeah. Check in on him. See what's up with Tuck. So another thing that you and I mentioned while we were watching it is kind of the parallel between Romeo and Juliet and this Emotep and Anaxuna Moon relationship and in the end, it is a little bit heart-wrenching that this person who is trying to go to the ends of the earth to be with his beloved is ultimately denied by the character of Rick. And obviously the (laughs) Magi, you know, thank him for it. And they believe that it would have been this, you know, catastrophic event. But the only reason that he was put into this position as the mummy is because of this forbidden love. And love is just trying to find a way essentially yeah. i'm not and trying to make him out to be the hero or anything just that, <laughs> just that it, it there's a lot of Hot nuance takes. to it if you were to delve into it well there is yeah, and there he didn't is. make himself the mummy right the only bad thing that he actually really did was plan to kill seti the first yeah that was bad murder is bad but he was <laughs> but he, was he did not turn himself into the mummy and then do all of this correct correct presumably he was murdering seti because of this forbidden love that he thought would only be possible without Seti, you know, in the picture. So it is still kind of love-driven, but I'm not going to say that murder is okay as long as it's love-driven. This podcast does not support that at all. (laughs) (laughs) No murdering. No, he's still a villain. It's just the other villain is uptight. Uptight people in yeah, ancient the real, Egypt. The real villain is society here. Uh, <laughs> the, the real villain is the friends we made along the way. <laughs> but yeah, watching it, watching it at the end, I think you and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, "Is Rick the villain? <laughs> <laughs> Did he just shut down this guy that's just trying to, you know, get with his girl? Is he the villain?" <laughs> Other things that we noticed. Or that camels are the heroes, and yes. that you should always watch out for levers, because levers apparently can take down entire cities when you set something down on them. Yeah. And that seems like a very dangerous mechanism for something that is supposed to last thousands of years, to have one High lever stakes. that can destroy an entire city if you were to sit on it by accident, you know, put your cup of coffee down on it, your bag <laughs> of gold on it, for example. Um, and it just, Speaking. you know, everybody gets crushed and dies. Like, that's a pretty big design decision. Yes. It's a design flaw. That one's definitely a bug and not a feature. I mean, somebody definitely intended for that to happen. Maybe they just force merged it. Somebody with a very dark sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> one, one thing that I just realized, 
So the aforementioned peen is not the only oh, unintentional nudity. No, no, I'm not going to delve into that anymore, oh, okay, but it okay, isn't okay. the only unintentional nudity in this film, which I didn't think about until this minute. Which um, is? Because, so there's two other, there's two more. Really? So, yeah, I think I told you this earlier that during the scene where Imhotep is raising the sandstorm, his robes were mm. being blown around too much by a fan and kept showing his butt. So they had to like... <laughs> kind of pan differently or whatever. And that's why you uh, have to keep fans offset. They will ruin every shoot if you just let them <laughs> lifting up people's... Bah, bah, bah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> yes, gotta keep the fans under control. And then the other one is the white nightgown that Evie wears on the ship became more transparent than they expected when it got wet, and so they had to digitally paint it white during post-production mm. so it could stay PG-13. I feel like that is something that should not have been overlooked. Not considerate. Yeah, I mean, water plus thin white nightgown really only equals... Plus human woman. Yeah, equals one thing. Uh And it's kind of uncomfortable, too, to think about, because, like, this isn't only about the end product. This is also about the experience of shooting. And so it kind of makes you wonder, like, for her, what was that like to be like, oh, yeah, I'm basically naked in front of all of my coworkers. Mm -hmm. And that's, I guess, one thing if you're planning it, like films often do, but, you know. Anyway, they covered it up. So that's three instances of unintentional nudity that I can find during the filming of this movie. Very interesting. Write in if you find any more. We will, <laughs> we will trust yeah. but verify. And we will enjoy it. <laughs> God. <laughs> Get it. Okay. Another theme, too, for this movie that I think is interesting is a lot of the moments that I particularly love were either ad-libbed or otherwise Mm -hmm. improvised. And the two that really jump out are Benny's Think of My Children line, where he's trying to get Rick not to kill him. And he says that. And then Rick says, you don't have any children. And he's like, well, I could. (laughs) Kevin O'Connor improvised that line. And then apparently the moment where Rick is reloading also while they're on the riverboat and the bullets the shots in the wall are getting progressively closer to him. And then Evie grabs him and yanks him out of the way was also an improvised moment. So that's, that's kind so incredible. of, I, I think it speaks to the director too, you know, like you're letting people play enough that some of your best moments are coming out of that. It speaks to two different types of directors, the director of the movie itself. And then also the casting director where in order for you to have a movie that enables ad libs that are usable in the final film, like you still have to have really good dynamics between the characters And so I put that partially on the characters, but then also the person that decided here are the personalities that we want to be interacting. And we think that they can create, you know, some really great moments off of each other. And obviously they did. Yeah. That makes me wonder about movies that are not (laughs) like not usable ad libs or things like improvised movies that were less successful. And Mm. I'm trying to think of what is that one? Was it this is the end? That is one where I was like, I don't know if all this is as funny as you guys think it is. Yes, I know exactly which movie you're talking about. However, what I typically see on the other end of the spectrum is people that just robotically read their lines. Like, they're playing the character technically to a T, but, like, it's still kind of lifeless because there is no chemistry between people. Yeah. And so, like, those moments of ad-libbing and creating new things that weren't even in the script, but obviously add value to the movie, aren't enabled. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's usually what I think of on the other side. One thing I wanted to mention, and this I almost forgot because it goes all the way back to the beginning, that first sequence where they go from the universal opening credit Mm -hmm. deal into the, like, ancient Egypt, I love that part so much. And, you know, I think that... Yeah, well, and it's one of the most, for me, the most successful CG or visual effects elements of the film. I love that opening sequence so much. And every time I rewatch the movie, I don't know, it just really gets me like excited to watch the rest of the movie. I love picturing what it would have been like to live in ancient Egypt. And I just think that sequence is really, yeah, one of my favorites, really effective. Absolutely. Anything that can immerse you and make you feel like you're experiencing I don't know how to describe it. You know, anything that allows you to experience a different time period is kind of a magical thing. I mean, that's what we love about movies, books, things like that. They do transport you if they take the time to make it a vivid, rich environment. Yeah. Hard left turn into another question I had. Please. We're still in the pre... I don't know what to call it. I guess it's sort of a flashback, but we're still in the part where we're seeing Rick and his unit's original 
going <laughs> to yeah, yeah, yeah. Track. like after he almost dies and the, the Medjai are up on the cliff mm-hmm. there's a shot where I swear to God Ardeth Bay is holding a coffee cup <laughs> okay I have to go back that's one thing that I All wrote right. down I just like cup of coffee Medjai Hill <laughs> question mark <laughs> so like I have to go back, I have to go back and see what he's actually holding because I saw the shot and for the listeners we were not like stopping the movie during it we watched it straight through so I have to go back and check on that but I tell you what I'm gonna find that screenshot and put it on Instagram because I want to know what he's holding please do and I have a question for the audience also for you and Google mm-hmm. later can quicksand do that? So we talked about, so during the movie, Winston's plane goes down, they all get out just in time, but he goes down with the plane, but the plane basically like sinks into what appears to be just dry sand. Mm-hmm. Is there a type of quicksand that can do that? Because I thought it all had like liquid in it. It's at the top of the hill it. too, which yeah, good point. makes even also less good point. sense. So yeah, I'm also very curious about that. I am not a quicksand expert, but it didn't make visual sense to me either, but narrative sense, sure. Yeah. Sure. And with that, I think we're going to call it a day. Let's see. Right now, we are primarily on Instagram at The Adventure Links. And of course, everywhere you get your podcasts. And please subscribe. Please leave a review. A nice one would be really great because this is our first episode. (laughs) So be gentle. Be gentle. Yeah. Cool. We are so, so thankful that you chose to spend this time with us and that we get to spend this time with each other. We hope we see you back for our future episodes. We would love it if you would like, subscribe. We want all of your feedback, your favorite movies, things you're excited to see, what you did and didn't like about The Mummy, which characters you have strong feelings about. And we'll see you next time. Mason, do you want to say anything? I don't believe so. It's been an absolute (laughs) pleasure spending this time with you. Even if this podcast is not a success, any time that I get to spend with you talking about movies is a day well spent. So thank you, Emily. And we will talk to you soon. Bye, guys. Thank you for joining us today on Adventurelings, your weekly dose of filmic insanity. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us on social media at The Adventurelings or at theadventurelings.com for a full listing of episodes and links. Consider helping us grow this weird community by giving The Adventurelings a good rating on the podcast platform of your choice. Because we're very needy and insecure. And I need the affirmation. Being human is to be vulnerable, Emily. Frailty is bravery. Like and subscribe. Yep. (laughs) That's it. We're good.